When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and we have another great show for you tonight. Uh, My guest coming up is going to be Roz Brooks, and Roz is the public policy leader at PwC US, and she has a really interesting story. She's she's been there for over 22 years, and she's going to be sharing with us um, what I will call career persistence in finding and doing what uh, brought her the most joy. So um, sit tight for for Roz, who's going to be joining me in just a moment. Um, also, be sure to stay with us during the breaks, where you'll be hearing from our watch team contributors, who will be bringing you the latest information on your health and technology updates, law and autism, and also leadership inspiration from our in-house contributor, Holly Dowling. I'm also very happy and proud to welcome a brand new sponsor to the show, Second Saturday Workshops for Women, which provides a non-biased financial, emotional, and legal advice from qualified local professionals in your area um, to help women through the process of going through a divorce. Um, And you can learn more about the workshops by going to secondsaturday.com. That's S-E-C-O-N-D, saturday.com. And also be sure to visit us at womentowatch.net, N-E-T, to stay in touch and click on the lineup to see who's coming up next. We have a really amazing and wonderful mix of women guests in our lineup. And be sure to follow us as well on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can uh, stay in the loop and see what's new with the show. So now I want to get right to our special guest this evening and welcome to the show, Roz Brooks, again, the public policy leader for PwC US. Welcome to the show, Roz. 
Thanks, Sue. I appreciate being here. It's wonderful to have you here. And um, you and I spoke briefly uh, this week, and I learned a little bit more about you and your career journey and your life journey. And I find it really inspirational for a number of reasons. And the first and foremost being uh, the fact that I think you were probably raised as a, as a young girl um, with mom and dad leaning towards wanting you to be a doctor or a lawyer. And all these years later, you kind of found your way to doing something um, that you're a little bit more interested in that helps you to engage more with people. And uh, so I want to kind of tie those tie that together for the listeners and have you talk a little bit about your your years growing up in L.A. Thanks, Sue. Well, it's it's funny that you bring up kind of my mom wanting me to be a doctor, my dad wanting me to be a lawyer. And presently, when I try to explain to them what I do, they still are confused. My mother will tell me, <laughs> my mother will say to me on occasion, what is it you do again? I try to explain it to people and no one understands. Um, so I think as you and I talked a little bit earlier, my um, growing up in Los Angeles, my mom, we had a hamburger stand that we owned in Los Angeles that my mom ran for over 25 years. And my father was in management in the post office. And from their perspective, Perspective. I think it was the notion that they felt either being a doctor or a lawyer, I would always have job security. We kind of knew those to be stable professions. Right. But in terms of having exposure to kind of other professions or what else was out there, I really didn't know. It was kind of the mid to late 80s. So it was at the time when um, you were starting to hear more in Southern California about engineering as kind of um, trying to gain interest among women and minorities in terms of talking about different fields within engineering. So I attended a couple of engineering um, programs to learn more about that. But again, I think it was, as you and I discussed, for me, um, being that young, not really having a clue of what I really wanted to do, um, but still wanting to please my parents, I kind of felt that I had the most flexibility in saying that I was going to go to law school and become a lawyer because it allowed me to major in kind of whatever I wanted to and explore things before I had to actually say, okay, this is the field that I'm going in for the rest of my life. Right. Well, you know, you certainly had the um, the smarts to to pursue uh, medicine or or to be a lawyer, you did very very well in school, and um, you attended a Montessori school. Um, and let me ask you: a, a lot of times, a family-owned business um, will bring about an um, an interest in entrepreneurship, but also um, that work ethic. And I, I wonder how much time did you spend working in that hamburger stand in L.A. Right. So I actually spent a lot of time working in the hamburger stand and probably more than I wanted to once I got to high school, because um, as you say, I started my career. My father's always been a huge kind of education kind of advocate and my, my mother as well. But my father was very, I think, forward leaning and maybe some would say um, 
before his time and some of the the thoughts on on education. So Montessori, when I was you know early 70s, was kind of I went to Montessori for preschool and then I went to uh, Lutheran school for much of my elementary uh, education. And I remember begging my parents to allow me to go to the local high school, which was an LA Unified School District, and it was two blocks away from our hamburger stand, so it was, which was two blocks away from our home. So in total, it was only four blocks away from the house. And I begged my parents to let me go. My father said to me, you can only go if you get into, at the time, LA Unified School District was starting the magnet program. And the magnet program was a program where if you went to a magnet high school, they fed into a California state school school or UC school. And so my father said, you could only go to the public high school if you get into the magnet program. So I got into the magnet program. I go to the school and within the first kind of couple of weeks, I remember coming to the hamburger stand. I would come to the hamburger stand after school and my mother would say to me, so I heard you didn't dress for PE today. And I was <laughs> like, why do you know I didn't dress? So I, I questioned whether or not I had made the right decision in begging to go. But I worked at the hamburger stand a lot of times and often came into contact with a lot of the high school students students and business people in the area. And so really had to, because my responsibility was kind of taking orders. I usually, um, until I got into high school, I was really too young to kind of do the cooking behind the grill and everything. So it was kind of that interaction with customers, being able to look people in the eye, take orders, and then also, like you said, on the back end, just seeing my mother work as hard as she did every day and then having to help with whether it was stocking the, um, the pantry for the, the hamburger stand or dealing with adversity when inevitably, you know, you're in Los Angeles, kind of a business, inevitably we would have burglaries or my mother had been robbed a few times, just kind of learning kind of how to deal and adjust to things kind of within society. It really did, I think, instill in me a good work ethic, but so did my parents. Um, And it's interesting you you talk about the entrepreneurial side of things. I feel like my father and my mom, they they were very entrepreneurial people. My father in particular, he always kind of whether it was owning um, real estate in Los Angeles or having the hamburger stand, kind of always feeling that you need to have something or to be doing something. But at the core, I think he felt that kind of the the job he had at the post office provided the stability and the backdrop for the family because I would reflect many years later that my parents really did raise me to work for other people. They didn't raise me to be an entrepreneur. And that's something I've never, my parents are still alive. I have the fortune of still being alive, but we haven't really explored kind of why that is. Mm. that's that's interesting, and and um, I want to I want to continue with that thought, uh, Ross, when we come back from the break. Um, so stay tuned and and stay with us as you'll hear from Dr. Marianne Ritchie for our Health Watch. We'll be right back. Now the women to watch Health Watch from Jefferson University Hospital. I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Heat stroke. Our body heat is a combination of our metabolism and the heat we absorb from the environment. And as our core temperature rises, 
our brain signals the nervous system to produce sweating. As our sweat evaporates, we cool. But if the humidity is greater than 75%, the air cannot absorb our moisture. Higher temps lead to higher oxygen consumption, faster metabolism. Our heartbeat gets faster, breathing gets faster, blood rushes to the skin and muscles, leaving the gut, liver, and other organs which then fail. Low blood pressure, low urine output. You can become weak, lethargic, have slurred speech, become agitated, even develop seizures or coma. The diagnosis is based on a core temperature greater than 104 degrees, an altered mental status, exposure to severe heat, and really no other explanation. Know that some standard thermometers have a maximum temperature and yours may be higher, so we always need to check with a rectal thermometer. Make sure it's not an infection, a stroke, exposure to a toxin, or a hormone imbalance. Patients with classic heat stroke usually are at risk because of extreme age or some other medical condition like heart disease or kidney or liver disease or even alcohol or drug abuse. Young people are more likely to have heat stroke from exertion. They're healthy patients in heavy exercise during heat and humidity, like athletes or military recruits. Mortality rate can be high, 21 to 63 percent, and it correlates with the degree of temperature elevation, how quickly we begin cooling, and the number of organs that have been affected. So we use IV fluids, rapid cooling with cooling beds, and young people even immerse them in ice water, and possibly even the help of a respirator. So remember elderly family and neighbors, especially people who live alone. Stay cool, divas. Take care of yourself or nobody else will. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley Hilsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. Sue Rocco here. I'm joined this evening by Roz Brooks. And Roz is the public policy leader for PwC. Um, and just before the break, it was interesting, Raj, you were talking about, um, you know, mom and dad raising you to, I guess we could describe it as a, a life of service um, to others. And it's always interesting to me that we have these these insights later in life as adults when we're kids and we're we're in it. Um, we're often kind of pushing back on what, you know, the lessons mom and dad are are giving us. Right. Um, I think that's right. It, it was interesting because, um, you know, I think the late 90s, maybe mid-90s, there was a lot of talk about kind of, you know, people being entrepreneurs, whether it was, you know, house flipping was becoming like the, the rage and all this. And I remember reflecting on and reading a few books 
as to why I felt I didn't, you know, did I have an entrepreneurial spirit or didn't I? And um, that was probably like toward the end of law school after I had kind of a first job and starting to work at then Coopers and Librand, which, you know, kind of being in these firms, they really do, I feel, reward kind of that entrepreneurial spirit, like those people that are able to kind of motivate themselves, self-motivate and and kind of demonstrate their willingness to kind of move forward. Mm. And so it was really kind of a whole reflection for me as to, you know, what is it about myself? Kind of do I have those qualities? And I really think because, you know, before I came to work for CNL, I was in a situation where I was working um, in law and really didn't like it at all, like really hated it. Mm -hmm. But I probably never would have left that job because my parents had always told me, you never leave a good job. Like you never, like if you have a stable, you know, that's, that's the end goal. You have a stable environment, a good job. Why would you, why would you leave it for something else? And so um, I would say kind of, you know, it's been interesting over the years and having the conversation, my, my family would tell you, so my family has been my strongest advocate and strongest, you know, um, resource and kind of support mechanism throughout kind of my whole career. But there was a point where my father said to me once, he said, look, babe, he said, I've gone, I, I haven't gone anywhere near where you are in terms of career and in terms of, I can only advise so much. And I think it was a realization for both of us at that point that, you know, they had given me the foundation and had taught me what they thought were were good kind of foundational principles and what they knew at the time, but a recognition that there might be more or different or um, something else that wasn't, you know, bad or, or good or better, or but just different that I hadn't been exposed to. And now it was time for me to kind of take that journey and, and move it forward. Mm. And that that was probably a pivotal conversation just in allowing you to feel okay with um, pursuing different paths outside of law. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, and it, it was a shock for them. I think the, the first time I really communicated to them that I didn't enjoy practicing law, I mean, it was a, it was, it was a nerve wracking conversation for me to have with them. And I think it was really hard for them to hear because my mom in particular and my dad, you know, it was kind of a, a, a badge of pride. They had a daughter who was a lawyer. Um, you know, I had gone to Stanford. I had gone to Michigan for law school. And my mom would tell people in the grocery stores, like unsolicited, <laughs> they just asked how many children you had. Like that was kind of what she talked about. And so for <laughs> me to say that this is not what I want to do, I, I don't know what it is I want to do, but this is not it. Um, it was hard, I think, for them to hear. And, you know, my father would ask me, he said, well, what is it you want to do? And I said, I don't know. You know, I'm reading what color is your parachute. I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> trying to figure and it out. Exactly. I said, I love to cook. Maybe there's something. And my poor dad, he, he, was, he said, well, why do you, I said, maybe I want to run a bed and breakfast. He said, okay, why do you have to run the bed? Can't you own the bed and breakfast and like let other people? And what I think they finally understood, what I was trying to get from them is that it was about how I wanted to feel, how, how work made me feel. But I couldn't yet articulate that. 
um, because at that time there wasn't this notion necessarily that your job was supposed to make you feel any kind of way. Oh, it was your that's job. That's so true. Right? So true. But <laughs> yes, the, and we didn't talk about the feelings. It was just you know get something as you said that. Um, you know, they were going to keep you and right. you could save and have your pension and you're, you're right. all set for life. That's so true. Um, you know, you went to Stanford at age 16. Were you, you know, from a social standpoint, were you prepared? Were you feeling <laughs> no. confident? No. <laughs> that was but so young. I, I, I don't know that, I, you know, are you really, and I didn't know I wasn't prepared, right? So I had always, I'm a December baby and my parents had started me in kindergarten at four, so I turned five that, that year. So I was always the early one. I was always the youngest. I was kind of used to being the youngest. And going off to school, I think my father was more concerned than I really understood. Um, later, he would tell me he really, really was concerned, um, but I didn't get it. And so kind of going off and just experiencing, just kind of doing, you know, I was used to kind of being with older kids and I just, you know, it was just what, what you did and you kind of moved through. But I do think, you know, from my perspective, I probably would have done things differently if I had been a little bit more prepared or a little older. Mm. We always have hindsight. Um, listen, we're going to take another break, Ross. When we come back, I want to talk about how your psychology degree has helped you um, in life. Stay tuned for Kara Wyman for our Legal Watch and our autism expert. During the break, we'll be right back. Now, the women to watch. Legal Watch. Hi, this is Carol Weinman with Legal Watch. Did you know that teens spend over one-third of their day browsing the internet or social media? According to a study from the nonprofit group Common Sense Media, Teens spend an average of nearly nine hours a day using media such as online video or music. And those between eight and 12 average nearly six hours a day. So what are they viewing? Well, a lot may simply be chatting with friends or checking out videos for entertainment. Many are also watching pornography. This may not be surprising to most of you, but the problem arises when they inadvertently or unknowingly are lured into a child pornography site. And then the aftermath can be catastrophic, often facing 40 plus years in prison. A typical tween or teen boy, curious about sex, decides to go hunting on the internet. Most likely, he's interested in looking at pictures or videos of girls his age or women engaging in sex. Now, take a tween or teen with autism and the picture often looks very different. That boy of 15 or 16 years old is developmentally more like 10. And so he wants to see girls his perceived age or younger having sex. And that means viewing child pornography, either by choice or finding it by accident. It is not because he is a pedophile, but the law doesn't distinguish and the outcome can be devastating. That's why in these cases, It is so important to have a lawyer who understands autism. For more information, contact me at AutismLegal.com. 
The leading autism expert, attorney, and legal consultant, Carol Weinman, understands how to handle your legal needs. Weinman Law prides itself on keen judgment and unparalleled instinct. Weinman focuses on you, the client, as an individual with a very specific need, demanding her unique, one-of-a-kind expertise. Contact Weinman Law at 215-591-3614. That's 215-591-3614. Weinman Law, offering women and men nationwide expert representation and consultation. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. speaking with Roz Brooks this evening, and you're listening to Women to Watch on 1210 WPHT. Um, Roz, I always think it's so interesting when I when I talk to women, and they may be in various fields, but they have had, um, they majored in psychology in, co- in college, or else it was a part of their uh, curriculum, and, and you received a BA in English and psychology. And, you know, here you are with PwC all these years later in, in public policy. But tell me what, what that psychology degree um, did for you. And I know you have such an in- incredible interest in people. You know, you're, you're much happier engaging with people than you are sitting behind a desk. I am. And, you know, I think it, it's funny because people often say, okay, psychology and English, what were you planning to do? Again, I was going to law school, so that wasn't, that wasn't <laughs> my, my thought. But from the psychology was something I kind of fell into at Stanford in terms of I I went in thinking, oh, you know, my dad was was suggesting that international, the Pacific Rim was where it was, right? This was the 80s, um, late 80s. And so Japanese, international econ, um, and those turned out not to be for me. So then it was kind of, well, what, what is your next thing? And I had a guidance counselor who had suggested I just take intro to psychology. And in doing it, it really, for me, um, tapped into something about myself in terms of just being curious about people and curious in terms of what makes us tick, what motivates people, um, why do we do the things that we do, uh, development both in children and, and kind of once we're adults, kind of how we continue to evolve. And so I think just that interest that was fostered kind of through psychology courses has helped me kind of immeasurably kind of throughout my career. But like career and in life, just generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always had that interest and it just fostered that um, in terms of really being interested in people and why, you know, their stories and why they do the things they do and what motivates them. And, and you know, we it was the age old, you know, when I was coming through psychology, we were still talking about um, nurture versus nature, right? Your mm-hmm. environment versus the um, your natural intrinsic um, values, um, things that you were born with. And so that's always intrigued me, right? As you think about 
from policies or different things that are implemented, like how much of a person's success or their their um, where they end up in life is due to nurture versus nature. So those kind of issues and kind of questions always resonated with me and were, I think, like I said, fostered and kind of honed during my study of psychology at Stanford. And then that kind of basis just kind of exploded kind of in terms of just informal wanting to know more about people and wanting to understand people and getting, that's why for me, kind of people talk about the politics of this and the other being a, 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 a drag and not really wanting to, to engage. And I just find it fascinating. <laughs> it's just like, you know, wow, okay, so this is why this person may or may not have done this, or this is why this person did that. And, and oh, by the way, you know, how can I influence, if at all, kind of that, that whole interaction and, and what were the causes? So I think it's been really helpful and interesting um, in terms of progressing both my career and just personally, just being able to develop friendships and, and networks throughout my life. Yeah, I would imagine, too, it's been you know, in your role um, at PwC, just so the listeners have a, an understanding of the work that you do, um, it really involves um, developing strategies to uh, achieve favorable policies for PwC and your industry. And you work with Congress, the executive branch, um, the federal regulatory agencies. Um, and so persuasion um, is something that I think would be a key trait for you in the work that you do. One of the questions I have for you, because as an outsider, um, not working with the folks in D.C., I think we a lot of us have a point of view that not much gets done or else it's just kind of um, circulatory. And I wonder what your experience has been um, doing the work that you do and working with these people in Washington. You know, I think the I'll give you an example from um, the recent election, because I think what has surprised me most about kind of working in this field is that I never really thought about, you know, my local congressman or senator as kind of a, this, this sounds horrible to say, but as a real person, right? I just kind of thought about, oh, that senator so-and-so never really, or, or congressman, um, but I was speaking with someone um, after the election, and I don't mind saying it was someone on the in of the Democratic Party after the election, and it it was a senator. And I said, "So, you know, how are things? How are you doing? You know, kind of." And this person took the time. They were they were talking about how they personally felt in terms of the challenges for them in coming back to the to their job and to representing their constituents and whether or not they felt they could really do that accurately um, after what they had just experienced in the election or how they were feeling. And it caused me to pause because I had forgotten really the the humane side of politics in terms of we, we tend to get very cynical and it's easy to get very cynical very quickly. Um, and we hear a lot of the scandals and the stories about politicians and lobbyists and others who kind of are doing things to enrich themselves, this and the other. But many, many of these people, and including kind of the waves that are that are occurring now, got involved with politics and are involved with our government 
for for the point of service that you had kind of mentioned earlier in that they really wanted to either make a difference or change or, or do something positive for or they saw a wrong that they wanted to right. And that gets lost sometimes when we're talking about the partisanship and, and whatever. And so what I've seen really um, as a whole, you do have the kind of complaint and the focus that it's hard to get anything through Congress, hard for anything to get done. But you do see pockets of people coming together and trying to, you know, I feel like for the last six to seven years, we've been on a deadline or expiration type <laughs> type um, uh, way of getting things done where either something is expiring or a deadline is approaching and so it's forcing action and so that's where you're going to get large kind of massive comprehensive action on things but there still are little things I think that are getting done um, within Congress and then the regulatory agencies and the executive branch there's still you know a ton of things that are occurring not just from people who are appointed like from political positions but those people who are career government officials, like career service people who, who are working in those agencies. You know, it's it's refreshing to hear you say that, number one. And would you say that, um, what do you believe is the cause for uh, many of these uh, politicians in losing their way? Is it is it the cynicism or is it uh, sometimes the power that they're given kind of leads them astray from from their service, their initial um, interest in serving others? Do you have a personal opinion? You know, it's hard to say, and I have to believe it's as unique as the people are who are in mm. those positions, right? right? Yeah, um, sure. But sometimes you see stories, and I've seen stories over the years um, of scandal happening, of, of people that I've had the the pleasure to kind of interact with or have had, you know, the, the ability to either um, – have conversations with about different things and you know a little bit about, you know, you never, I'm not a close friend of like many people, but you talk about family things and you talk about, um, you know, just things that they're going through and you wonder kind of what made them do that. And so I don't know exactly what it is. I can tell you that it's easy. It's easy to be here no matter who you are. So if you're in this world, whether you're me or whether you're a a member of Congress or someone, it's easy to get disconnected Mm -hmm. from what's really happening, Mm -hmm. right? It's easy to get. And I think that's been a phenomenon we've seen um, as the president was elected. I think many in Congress who, if they're honest, many of them didn't believe the election would turn out the way it did are now grappling with, you know, what is it that they missed? And so they feel kind of out of touch with where the country may be in terms of this, you know, something happening that they never saw coming. Mm. And so I think some of it is, you know, you, you can, it's easy to, to lose touch kind of being here. We call it in the beltway or in the bubble um, mm-hmm. where, where things are, are just different. Um, but again, like I said, it's as unique as the, the people are who serve. So I think you're absolutely right. I think that, that's so true. Um, listen, we're going to take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about the fact that you were the very first non-partner placed in a leadership role at PwC. We'll be right back. Stay tuned for our Leadership Watch with Holly Dowling during the break. Women to Watch. Leadership Watch. Hi, everybody. Holly Dowling here with your Leadership Watch. 
And today I'm excited to talk about something and share with you the big buzzword that's going around. We're hearing about it everywhere now, authentic leadership. I know it sounds really vanilla and it's a buzzword. We're hearing it in the corporate world. We're hearing it globally in all different firms, companies, everywhere, the authentic leader. And the question I get asked so many times is, what does that really mean? What is an authentic leader? And here's what I want you to know. Start embracing your authenticity as a person, because as a leader, the authentic leader really means the real you. Guess what? No one is perfect. There is no perfect leader and there is no perfect prescription or checklist to being the perfect leader. The authentic leader is showing up and bringing your greatest gifts, your strengths, and stop trying to be what all these books and great strategies are teaching us to be and start throwing out what everybody else expects from you and get really clear on who you are as an authentic human being. And you know what they really need? from you to be truly authentic is your real story. No one's have a, had a perfect road and a perfect journey to leadership. And what people need from you is your story behind the story. They want you to pull back the layers of the onion and get real. Tell us what you've really been through. Sit down with your teams and start to share with them what the journey's really been like and all of the ups and downs that got you where you are. That is what inspires people. That is what creates trust. That is what creates followership. Because you as a leader cannot force people to follow you. They follow you because they're inspired by you and they choose to want to believe you and trust you. So how are you leading as an authentic leader? Get back to the true you. That's what they need from you. Love to have and hear your story. So please reach out to me at hollydowling.com. is Holly Dowling. Holly is a dynamic keynote speaker and inspirational thought leader. You see what we have the ability to do and the power we have. You hold the power for good. Each and every one of us can do something. Holly has inspired millions around the world, including over 500,000 executives, and her show is listened to in 87 countries. Now we're going to spend 25 minutes on your areas of opportunity. Listen to our internationally acclaimed podcast, A Celebration of You, Holly Dowling, empowering those who can change the world. HollyDowling.com. You're listening to another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm having a wonderful conversation with Roz Brooks. Uh, this evening, she's the public policy leader at PwC. I, I just think you you have so much insight, Roz. I really um, appreciate your your candor in kind of describing and talking about your journey. One of the things I wanted the listeners to know is um, you were the very first non-partner to be placed in a leadership position at PwC. You're also a woman, <laughs> which we know. I want to know, you know, what do you think they saw in you? Um, to offer you and give you that opportunity? You know, that's that's a good question. And I wonder if, you know, we, I talk often about how um, sometimes we're not able to see our own kind of <laughs> like what it is people see in ourselves that that causes them to, to see what that spark is or what that something is that, that would allow them to put you in a particular position. I would say in my case, in this particular situation, um, I had a predecessor who was leaving and was adamant that I was the only obvious choice for replacing her. And at the time, I think that the 
incoming senior partners, so the new senior partner, hadn't really had an opportunity to get to know me. And so one of the things, a couple of things that I had to do, but one of the things I had to do is I put together um, kind of a document, a strategy document for him that, and I really did take the approach, Sue, of, you know, whether it's me or whether it's someone else, whoever it is that you choose for this role, here are some things they should be aware of and some things you should be thinking about as you think about it. Mm-hmm. And I really did put kind of what I thought were things that were for the best of the company, kind of in terms of trying to outline it. But in doing so, I think what I what I was also crafting and, and was also trying to convey is that you really need someone in this role who understands our business and understands the firm and is able to articulate that and communicate that with policymakers, with, you know, with people in government positions with ease, right? And who mm. really understands the nuance and the tensions of, of our various business units and, and, and the public trust and kind of integrity of what we do as public company auditors as well. And in, in trying to convey that and putting that forth, I think it allowed them and Tim in particular to see how much I did understand the company and how much I understood kind of the importance of communicating what we do and how I understood the importance of kind of the public company auditing side of what we do to the the rest of our business. Um, And so it allowed them to see me, I think, in a leadership type light, a strategic light, um, to understand that I understood that. And then interviewing with him, I think he recognized, you know, he asked me kind of what were my thoughts on leadership qualities, the qualities of a leader, and and what were my thoughts on kind of the strategy for the group. And so I think in, in interacting with him in that respect and being able to articulate those things, he became more comfortable that I did represent what he was looking for in someone who would be part of his team kind of to, as he navigated and moved forward and moved the firm forward. And it didn't matter at that point kind of what my title was. Um, it's interesting. I, I later, I, I have to believe like from some perspective, I'm like, so because we are a partnership and um, I had, when the, the announcement came out about the leadership team, I had a number of people reach out to me who are managing directors in the firm who were like, we are just so thrilled that you actually are on the leadership team. It gives us hope in terms of, you know, our roles and kind of our perspective. And and I had never thought of that before, honestly. Um, But I think it was just kind of that focus on the firm and what was in the best interest in the firm and demonstrating kind of my understanding of who we are and what we do, and and then my focus on kind of what qualities exist for a leader that aligned with his. Mm. And yes, I would imagine that ability to communicate because what you do and the work that the company does as a whole, um, because in my research, I noticed that you've done such um, a variety of things over the years. You know, currently you're working in public policy, but there were times when you were um, researching and analyzing what I read is complex international tax issues, which can right. sound very dry. Um, <laughs> did you enjoy that? You <laughs> How do you what? compare it's, that to lobbying? <laughs> you know what? It's funny. Um, so I did enjoy it because it was all about solving problems, right? So mm-hmm. I would say no matter if you were dealing with same areas within the tax code, for me, 
the facts always, there was some nuance, some difference that allowed you to look at the problem differently or look at the issue differently and figure out how you can solve for that. Um, I did enjoy it because when I was coming up, so when I started as an associate in the tax practice, I had the fortune to work for managers and partners who talked to me about more than the rules. It was kind of, okay, Roz, yeah, that's good. The rules say that. But what do you think they were trying to get at? And what was the policy behind it? And what was the intent? And we had clients who were more interested in abiding by the spirit of the law, right, than, than technically you're in the right, but we're going to do it this way. And so that kind of fostered in me this notion of, wow, you know, it helped you to think creatively when you were dealing with a problem, like what was the real intent? Is there a way to get there kind of by looking at different things? So it wasn't kind of this just cut and dry, here's the rule, here's what you have to do kind of it and moving forward. Yeah. And with that, you know, kind of you know, taking that to the next step. I did have partners who said to me when I chose to come into policy, they're like, what are you thinking? Like, you know, you're technical. You're so, you love that stuff. And I had to laugh and I said, well, it's, it's not that I so much loved it, but it was my <laughs> job. And so it, and it interested me. And I, and, and so from that perspective, from your perspective, it seemed like I was good at it and really, really loved it. I said, but this is an opportunity to use a different skill set, kind mm -hmm. of more of the people. I used to always have people tell me, we never knew like a tax geek who was like so social. Like, <laughs> You're this uh, dichotomy. Right, right. So I yeah. do feel like I was able to have both. I was able to um, have it both ways and that I've been very fortunate to be able, I'm very technical and can be very analytical, yeah. but at the same time to be able to utilize kind of the people skills and what people would typically call the soft stuff right, has, been, right. um, has been very interesting to me. Well, listen, I, I am so grateful that you came on the show today to, to share your story, and I hope you continue to explore and enjoy the work that you do. Um, you're a great example of a leader. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Roz. And coming up next will be Mary Manzo for our Tech, Not, tech Watch. Excuse me. Stay with us. Now, the women to watch. Mary Manso, partner and CEO of Pathways Consulting Group. Our focus is delivering world-class enterprise service management solutions, or ESM for short. Although ESM affects every role in every organization, people always ask me, what is ESM? Simply put, it's automating the process by which any request in your company is submitted, approved, and fulfilled. Here's an example. Suppose your company hires a new employee who needs a laptop on day one. It seems simple enough, but actually this one request involves HR, the hiring manager, IT, finance, procurement, shipping, and receiving. A lot needs to happen for this one seemingly simple request to get fulfilled. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Every day your company is bombarded with simple requests. What ESM does is streamline, standardize, and automate all these requests in the cloud, simplifying what would otherwise be a complex process. It's all handled behind the scenes, so you and your coworkers aren't bogged down by the details. It's a little bit like ordering a pair of shoes on Amazon. You, as the consumer, just click a few buttons, and a day later, those perfect shoes show up at your door. This process is simple and quick, right? But under the hood, way more is happening. 
Your order is getting processed by buyers, the warehouse, the shipping department, and probably a whole bunch of other departments. The beautiful thing with Amazon is that you as the consumer don't have to deal with any of the back-end workflow. You just get the shoes you wanted so you can focus on your night out. It's the same thing with enterprise service management. Whether it's getting a laptop, hiring a new employee, aligning your entire project portfolio, or any of the countless tasks performed every day in every department, ESM is a cost-effective way of simplifying and satisfying all your company requests quickly and efficiently so you can focus on doing your job. If this sounds like a challenge you want to solve, I'd love to share how we've helped our clients improve service delivery while lowering costs by leveraging ESM applications like ServiceNow. I can be reached at mary at pathwayscg.com. I'd love to hear from you. That's it for this week. And thanks again to our sponsors and contributors for helping to make Women to Watch the go-to show for the life stories of women leaders. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week, everyone. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.